As we understand physical reality and physical matter more and more deeply, we realize its enormous potential to do things that surprise us. This is Nobel Prize Conversations. That was the 2004 laureate in physics, Frank Wilczek. And we're understanding more and more about how mind emerges from matter. That's not a finished story, but it's a story that's well in progress now. And so far, there don't seem to be any showstopper. Ranging research of American theoretical physicist and mathematician Frank Wilczek has contributed to knowledge in fields as diverse as fundamental particle physics, cosmology, and materials physics. In 2004, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for the discovery of the fundamental equations behind the force that holds atomic nuclei together. He shared the prize with David Gross and H. David Pollitzer, with whom he developed the asymptotic freedom theory in 1973. Nobel Prize Conversations is produced with the support of our Nobel International Partners, 3M, ABB, Ericsson and Scania. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. Wilczek calls himself an intellectual adventurer and has written several scientific books. He argued for the mathematical beauty of nature in his 2015 book, A Beautiful Question, Finding Nature's Deep Design. Now, in his just-released book, Fundamentals, Ten Keys to Reality, he attempts, as he puts it himself, to convey the central messages of modern physics as simply as possible. The title, Fundamentals, Ten Keys to Reality, what you describe in the book, much of it is, for most people, anything but the reality they know. And I suppose that's the intention of the title, to surprise people. <laughs> that, well, they, they know it without knowing it because they're embedded in it and made out of it. <laughs> and, but, but yes, it requires a very new attitude towards uh, your relationship with, with physical reality to do justice to uh, our best understanding. The relationship with reality we develop as children, sort of necessarily under the pressure of having to learn how to cope and in interpret the kind of jumbled messages our sense sensory apparatus uh, gives us to make useful pictures of objects in three-dimensional space and regular behaviors that we can predict and people and us and, uh, and my body and uh, uh, all these things are based on rules of thumb we develop as little baby experimentalists <laughs> interacting with the world. But we don't use the tools of... Uh, microscopes and telescopes and magnetometers and spectrometers and all the many kinds of instruments that that modern science uh, makes available and we don't use critical reasoning or logic or, or quantitative thinking. The rules of thumb we develop as children serve us very well for practical purposes, but they to, to do justice to the many wonderful surprises that are revealed when you investigate more uh, systematically and with more powerful instruments, you, you have to 
rethink a lot of things. You have to unlearn things as well as earn, learn things. You use this lovely phrase that you need to be born again. Yes, I love that idea. It's uh, it's very different. Consciously, I, I, I chose to use some religious terminology, although my intentions are not religious in the conventional sense. So talking about fundamentals, first of all, and having 10, like 10 commandments, <laughs> 10 keys. <laughs> and and this concept of being born again, of course, is one that, that's characteristic of certain branches of evangelical Christianity. It's a beautiful concept, I think, in this sense of being open to experience and and going th- regoing through the process of coming to terms with physical reality but now using all the tools that that we have available if not yourself at least by reading about it from people you trust and uh you know really reimagining what what it all means right that idea of people you trust is very interesting because as a baby, as a child, you're discovering the world for yourself. And sure, people are telling you things and you're accepting them. But of course, the real discovery comes when you realise it yourself. But in a way, the journey you take the reader on in the book and the, this journey through reality um, requires total trust in you or in the scientists who come up with this information. Because although these these techniques are yeah. available and you can read about the results, yeah. it's all beyond the reader. I mean, it's all well, the stuff that you have to take on trust, yes, if you see what I mean. In a certain sense. But how should I say? You can't verify everything for yourself, but you can check it out. <laughs> you can check out any particular thing if you want to. And I, I I tried to present at least minimal documentation of what what the experiments were that, that made some of the key insights possible. Uh, you know, you can certainly you know, buy a home prism and experiment with light the way Newton did and, and uncover these basic ideas. So, it's yes, it's not practical even for a scientist. Don't check everything that other scientists have done. They rely on previous generations and, and documents and things that they learn in class. But it's always checkable in a sense. That, and that that's really important. Mm. Uh, and yeah, so I guess th- this was a famous phrase. I think that maybe uh, was it Ronald Reagan or someone like the. Uh, used was trust but verify in connection in connection with uh, nuclear weapons. I mean, you uh, you you can have trust, uh, but that doesn't free you of the obligation in principle to verify, and and that's a very important thing that that uh, to maintain trust by knowing that you could be verified, you could be checked, right? <laughs> yeah. Trust has to be earned, I guess, is a way to the way to say it. Staying with this born again idea, I suppose what it implies is that somehow between that lovely curious phase of being very small with an insatiable appetite for getting new knowledge and adulthood, something happens which turns one into the sort of person who is no longer receptive in most cases. Yeah, well, people want to get on with their lives. So yes, getting into uh, accurate touch with physical reality for many people is sort of uh, a luxury or not on their agenda. And uh, I can understand that, you know, people, you know, certainly if uh, if their economic 
situations are precarious. They have to think first about getting food on the table or whatever, and uh, raising the raising children, be participating in family life. There are many things that uh, have calls on people's time and practice. Uh, but if you do have the time and the inclination, there are wonderful things you can experience uh, by revisiting these fundamentals. I think you can expand your experience of the world and and learn some very beautiful and surprising things. So, so it's an opportunity. It's it's not an obligation. And I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's necessary that people close themselves off. It's just that uh, they have other priorities, right, usually. And, um, but if, how shall I say, if you can spare the time and, and, and mental effort, this is a, it's a wonderful opportunity uh, afforded by physical reality and what, what we've, what we've uh, managed to understand about it uh, because it's full of surprises and it's literally mind expanding you and and you it will expand your experience of the world when you think about what's happening under the hood so to speak and and you can think at different levels <laughs> and it also of course empowers you to uh, if you're a technologist or, or uh, to to uh build new kinds of things or in general, to think about the future, which is going to be largely driven by science and technology. Fundamentals, 10 Keys to Reality, is anything but an advanced book just for physicists. Wilczek thinks it should be accessible to everyone, a lawyer, an artist, or anyone who is curious and wants to understand how physics and cosmology are linked to the real world. Taking a philosophical approach, Wilczek investigates the ideas that form our understanding of the universe. Time, space, matter, energy, complexity and complementarity. One of the things he believes is important is the pleasure of making new discoveries. Yes, there really is pleasure in finding things out. <laughs> and uh, and how should I say... Um... You can have a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down, <laughs> or you attract more flies with more, more flies with honey than with acid, or whatever the saying is. <laughs> there, there are lots of sayings like that, but but I think the, the deep fact that's that's here is that unlearning things or learning new things can be a lot of mental effort, and. The really accurate understanding of nature is in an unfamiliar language. So uh, in order to get there, so to speak, you have to invest some time. And uh, unless you're motivated, that can be very difficult. But if you see what the payoff is going to be and that there's enormous pleasure to be had in achieving this understanding... It's not work anymore. It's fun. It's expansion. It's it's pleasure. It's it's a mental holiday, if you like. In the course of doing that, as sort of a a process of entertainment and love and enjoyment, as a benefit, you get increased power, increased power to understand things and and uh, and make informed decisions. And this theme that again runs through the course of the book, the idea that. This understanding changes yes. our views of ourselves 
very fundamentally. You use the phrase that we are just patterns of nature, yes. that this understanding leads you to see that you are not separate from the reality yes, we are studying, but I, I just so. part of it. Talk about the consequences of that, because that's fairly profound. Yeah, well, I think that the deeper you understand physical reality, you realise that we've understood a lot. There are mysteries, of course, at the, at the frontiers of understanding and, and important ones, but we understand a lot. And I think it's become overwhelmingly clear that humans are made out of the same kinds of materials and uh, that behave in the same kind of way as the materials that make up the rest of the world, that if there is such a thing as a soul, it's its effects are very difficult to trace down (laughs) and you can explain a lot without it. A better and more poetic way to put it is that as we understand, stood physical reality and physical matter more and more deeply, we realize its enormous potential to do things that surprise us. And uh, whereas the processes of metabolism and heredity and sensation were once very mysterious, now we understand them as emergent properties of molecules and atoms and things that obey regular laws. And we're understanding more and more about how mind emerges from matter. That's not a finished story, but it's a story that's well in progress now. And so far, there don't seem to be any showstoppers on to the idea that Uh, mind really is an emergent property of matter. And that means one's view of what one is, is rather different. You see that you're part of a universe that has uh, regularity, that has a kind of beauty, that has vast potentials that are untapped. And also that the distinction between the part of the universe that I especially influence my body is really just a very special part of a much vaster structure that that I mean th- that's a, th- those things are just true and then then what you should do about them is another issue but to me they give they they give you uh, encouragement to be tolerant to have empathy because you see that other people have so much in common with yourself fundamentally and and not only people but animals whatever and 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 also then and then the other thing that uh, is complementary to that in a sense or additional to that is you learn that in in the course of understanding physical reality that it may be important to take very different ways of organizing knowledge and asking questions, different levels of description, may be really uh, vital to getting uh, full understanding, and and so and they may even appear to be contradictory to one another. So instead of rejecting outright with disdain other points of view, you learn to to try to learn from them and, and incorporate them. That's that that's a sort of methodological lesson that I think emerges from from understanding. So those those two things, understanding the, that matter is and the universe is wonderfully abundant and, and full of potential and that 
things may be hard to understand and you may need to consider different points of view. Uh, those two things, I think, while they're not moral principles, they suggest moral principles. Maybe it occurs to everybody else, but I was very struck by this idea of um, empathy for nature arising from the fact that we're part of it, being a reason to be good stewards of the planet, often placed on humanity as a responsibility. They've got to this position of being able to change things, so they need to look after it. But saying, actually, you're part of it, and it's part of you, is another reason for looking after it. Yes, I think so. They, and of course, they, they, they don't contradict one another, they reinforce one another. This idea that, um, well, nobody can know everything anymore. Knowledge is becoming quite segmented. Mm. One's very dependent on guides like you to take us through the, <laughs> yeah. the nature of reality. But you, you quote John Pierce and this idea that nobody will ever know as much about nature as uh, the Greek philosophers. It's all become too complicated. As it's they thought nice they thought. knew. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, our standards for what it means to know something have increased have, have, have risen uh, the you know the uh, the Aristotelian system for instance was very satisfying to many people for a long time and explained things in kind of a verbal way and uh, you know animals were like animals because they had animal nature <laughs> well I'm, I'm giving a caricature but 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 these verbal explanations that were kind of very forgiving and soft are very different from the kind of explanations that we now aspire to in science where we want quantitative relations and and we test them with all the accuracy we can and people get Nobel prizes for finding little deviations from from what what was expected and uh the the um uh so the standards have risen, and the standards are have risen so high that we'll never achieve them. <laughs> we can't. We can't. Uh, uh, that's the basic phenomenon. The, but you know, the, the good news is that uh, we know we don't we we will we don't know everything, and never will because the standards keep rising, and and the and the, and the, the scope of what we as uh, as up. Uh, aspire to as, uh, apply those standards too keeps expanding the, the 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 quantity of knowledge is increasing vastly exponentially and the other thing is that uh the way it's organized is is getting much better so it's you know you can't master everything for sure you know no one no one's brain uh, contains all the material on the internet, but there's the internet, and you can you can you can find things there, and and it's become easier to access. You know, so so uh, if you're willing to, to devote time, and you can hone in on any particular area and get quite a deep knowledge and reach the frontiers of knowledge typically pretty quickly. Uh, so yes, you can't know everything at once, but you can focus in on one thing or another and 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 and, and go deep. Yeah. You talk about the style of thought that's required to make discoveries nowadays. Has it changed? Has it always been thus? Uh, it's evolved. I don't think it's changed fundamentally since 
the great upheavals of the scientific revolutions of the 17th century that, that culminated in the 17th century with Newtonian, the Newtonian synthesis. It's this ambition for precise, quantitative laws and uh, inspiring models that we've achieved in, in certain directions in that, in that way. I mean, what, where you should get and the rough road, <laughs> the rough sketch of the road to how you get there, I don't think has changed fundamentally since then. But it is, it has evolved and it may be fundamentally changing now because the technology has become vastly more sophisticated so we can apply different kinds of instruments and the the standards have been, you know, we can look very far out, we can look very deep in, uh, we can look with great precision. Uh, we've learned uh, things that, okay, they're maybe not as fundamental as the idea that you should aspire to an exact description of nature, but things like that the world obeys the rules of quantum mechanics, which are so different from what came before it has certainly changed the practice of physics in a, in a, in a way that, that's discontinuous, I would say. And now, in many disciplines, the impact of powerful computing machines is being felt, and that is changing the way that people investigate things and even in what you call a successful understanding a good example is is quantum chromodynamics, our theory of the strong force. Okay, we have basic equations, but they're uh, very difficult to solve and apply. And if we didn't have computers, which can do calculations, which no human could begin to do, we would really be in some doubt that it was even a correct theory because we wouldn't be able to draw consequences from it that we could check. And... Now people are using computers to make models that take enormous amounts of data and kind of boil down descriptions of them uh, that may be uh, embodied as a neural net or something like that that allows you to make predictions or classifications of of, of new instances. And uh, even the people who make these neural nets so program their, their learning don't necessarily understand what the product is or how they work at the end of the day. And they just, you get answers with that. And, and, and uh, you ask, what, well, how, what's the theory? The theory is this thing that, uh, that does, the, does the computation. So that's a new way of understanding that is starting to invade science on many fronts, and not only science. It's a new way of understanding that gets, in many cases, to the same kind of level of being able to make quantitative predictions with very demanding standards for precision and accuracy that uh, has been the, the inspiration of science since, since the scientific since the 17th century. But it's not in a form of like humanly digestible laws, which has kind of been the, the, uh, the ground until now. So, you know, we worked very hard in physics to boil things down to a few laws that you can state and write down on, an, on a T-shirt or a small piece of paper, uh, and, and that's worked. 
but there's a different way now of uh, not, of coding things that's much that's again a different language that maybe we'll have to get used to, but it's it's quite different. It's not it's not adapted to the human brain in in quite the same way. As it does it has different limitations on speed of processing and on ac- and on amounts of memory and accuracy of memory and laws adapted to that kind of mind are quite different necess- you know, could be quite different in character from laws adapted to uh, human minds or i should say unaided human minds of course we can work with our silicon friends we can cooperate i suppose it's a bit of a facile question, but do you fear it? Do you think, is there anything to fear about it? Uh, no, but, uh, well, okay, so so I don't personally feel, but thinking more broadly in, in the spirit of empathy about the human race and, and its future, that I don't fear it on the whole. I fear some particular things. It's not a matter of fear. I would say it's more like concern because I'm optimistic about this, but I, there certainly are concerns about uh, new kinds of mind that are very powerful. There's not been a long socialization period or history or uh, that, how they might behave that, that might be uh, scary or destructive. I think those problems are so complex that it's almost idle to think about them at this point. It's going to have to be worked out by experience with interacting with these guys. Uh, There's this concept of the singularity that all of a sudden you wake up and the computers are so powerful that they're taking over. And I don't believe in that. I think it's going to be a slow process and there'll be time to adjust and learn and, and cooperate. So in general, I'm optimistic, but... One thing worries me a lot, which is that a major motivation for many developments in artificial intelligence and machine learning and building powerful robots and all that, all that kind of thing is military applications. And if you think about it, when you're training new or building new mines for military use, you want them to be very alert to threats and also very sort of proactive in in beating those threats down. So if you just phrase the terminology a little, rephrase it a little bit, you're trying to build paranoids. <laughs> you're trying to build paranoid, aggressive personalities. And uh, yeah, that's, you know, that's really, that could get out of hand very easily. So I think that really, that concerns me. I think that really has to be paid careful attention to. Frank Wilczek was born in New York in 1951. While he cites the public schools in Queens and the excellent teaching and advanced courses there, these weren't the only factors that led him to study science and later specialise in theoretical physics. His parents encouraged him to study and to learn technical skills. He was also a child of the Cold War, when space exploration was new and exciting, and atomic science loomed large in the public consciousness due to the threat of nuclear war. But perhaps most fundamentally, he showed a natural curiosity from an early age and loved solving all kinds of puzzles, games and mysteries. You were in the fortuitous position of being just switched on to science 
yourself from a very... You seem to have been born a scientist, which is... I think that's true. Uh, I had the inclinations, which are happen to be in very good uh, sync with what's required to be a modern scientist, right? Mathematical interest and skill and, uh, and you know, just curiosity and, and also a kind of aesthetic sense, I think, for trying to make the description of the world more beautiful and also to appreciate the beauty of the world. Yeah. Did that interest need any nurturing? Well, I don't know if it needed it, but it certainly benefited from it. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could, it could have been, it certainly could have been squelched too, but I was very fortunate in, in, in my choice of parents. I was very fortunate. They were very supportive. Uh, in the place and time where I grew up, I grew up in New York City, which had a, you know, a thriving uh, cosmopolitan culture and a very good school system at the time. I, and uh, at, it was during the Cold War, so the, uh, the uh, respect for and esteem for science and scientists was at a, was at a peak. Um, and, you know, we had this space, you know, marvelous imagination-stimulating stuff going on with the space race. And, of course, the atom bomb was terrifying, but also very impressive. And I was also very fortunate in, uh, in encountering individuals who uh, I, I might have done fine with, without them. I don't know. But certainly, uh, you know, encountering... Uh, Peter Freund, as an undergraduate, who inspired me with symmetry, and and, and David Gross as my uh, thesis advisor, who uh, yeah got me into very fruitful uh, work. <laughs> that uh, those were very very fortunate. You know, so I, I did have the inclination. I did have some talent. I think it's fair to say, but but I also got a lot of help. As an undergrad at the University of Chicago. Frank Wilczek took a variety of courses, but majored in mathematics. During his last term there, he studied the use of symmetry and group theory in physics under Peter Frund, a famous pioneer in string theory. He found it very inspiring. He became a graduate student in the maths department at Princeton University, but he still kept one foot in physics and his options open. Wilczek has worked at a number of universities around the world over the years, but now mainly serves as the Hermann Feshbach Professor of Physics at MIT. Was there ever a point of um, kind of wondering how it would go or, or doubt? I remember encountering a, some very gifted um, individuals in China at a place in Hefei where they specialise in taking children who are excelling and, and moving them very fast. And you went to you went to Chicago at the age of 15, you went into graduate study at the age of 18, you were moving so fast. In a way, it must be strange to find yourself having to slow down at some point after this very... Ex- oh, oh, I had a terrible crisis when I arrived in Princeton, ex- exactly along those lines. Uh, so when I arrived as a graduate student in Princeton, I had majored in mathematics. I didn't, I didn't necessarily think that I was going to specialize in physics. I, I was kind of groping around for what I was going to do, actually. And uh, it was a rude shock to me to suddenly go from something that I could do very easily, which was learn new things and explore and have fun, <laughs> to the uh, 
very different kind of activities that are involved in pushing the frontiers of knowledge, which is a much slower, much chancier process that requires a very different kind of discipline. You kind of have to not not go off and learn the most interesting thing necessarily that, that appeals to you that day. You have to sit down and struggle with things. And, and I had a very difficult couple of years, first couple of years at Princeton. I was a graduate student in mathematics and I was resisting specializing in mathematics because I didn't want to. I, 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 I really wanted to apply this stuff, but I didn't know to what. Uh, and it was very, I was very lucky that I was in the right place at the right time when the, uh, this particular kind of physics of, of, uh, that, of what we call fundamental physics that was using the kind of mathematics I really liked was was really blossoming and exploding, and I was able to get in on the ground floor of that. Right, and then the results came quickly because again, I remember these Chinese students, you know, seventeen and eighteen year olds, suddenly um, finding themselves trying to get research results and asking, in fact, asking in this case the Nobel laureate we were visiting with, how do I get results faster? How do I make things happen faster? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I. Uh... Well, something that springs to mind, although it's a little bit different, but but it springs to mind is that, uh, and if you twist it around a little bit, I think fits, is that uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald described the process of going bankrupt. It may have been Ernest Hemingway, I don't remember. It was one of those two guys. <laughs> Just as uh, uh, it happens... Uh, very slowly and very slowly, and then all at once. <laughs> so, so, so there's a process. To me, it was very important. To, I mean, looking back, this process, this period in the wilderness, was really important because if I had committed myself to something prematurely, without looking around for where the opportunities are, were the best. Uh, it wouldn't have worked out so well. <laughs> you know? So, so. It's a balance between exploration and exploitation. And that goes very deep. But I think the, the key is that once you find something that's really promising, then you have to go for it. You have to, rec- you have to get off this. Ex- you have, at some point, you have to change from exploration to rex- exploitation. And this is actually a very interesting and powerful chapter now in machine learning where people uh, there's there's a uh, a discipline called reinforcement learning where instead of trying to solve problems in a straightforward way you first explore see what the landscape is around and and then and then once you've explored then you go to a separate stage where you exploit and so if you skip the exploration stage and just try to force the exploitation you might be trying to squeeze blood from a turnip, as they say. You, 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 you. <laughs> I can see that, but at the same time, you need the good taste to know when to stop exploring. When you found the gold, that must be a special talent, recognizing that in itself. Yeah, but well, one thing is for sure: if you don't try, you won't do it. So, so you have to. <laughs> so uh, uh, that, and that's what I've seen uh, myself in China, where I've had some experience and also in the States for that matter. When you have uh, graduate students or people at the early parts of their career who don't have a lot of self-confidence, 
they are they feel enormous pressure to do something, even if it's not necessarily that great. They just have to do something. <laughs> But that's a very dangerous uh, that's a very dangerous strategy in the long run. Yeah. Just stopping off at that confidence piece, you must have had a decent level of self confidence to be at Princeton and to allow the time to go by without finding quite where you want it to be. I suppose things are even more competitive now and people need to be faster in getting their foot on the ladder, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, looking back on it, I was fortunate that I was so naive because I, I really did not think very much about how was this going to lead to a job or I just didn't. I just... Uh, I was just focused on trying to do something great. I wanted to do something great. I didn't know what, but I wanted to do something great. And nothing else mattered, really. And, uh, the, cause, and, I, and I could do that in retrospect because uh, I felt, you know, worst case scenario, I wouldn't starve out in the streets. I had family support <laughs> and, uh, and, and I could always go, go off and do computer programming or something like that. I, I would survive, but, but uh, uh, that was part of it. And the other part was that, that, that why I felt I could do these explorations, but also that uh, during my, my career in school, I had had many successes and awards and things like that. So, so, so I did have, you know, I, I didn't have the confidence that comes from doing successful new investigations of frontiers of knowledge, really. Uh, but I did have a lot of, I had gotten a lot of positive reinforcement in the past. So I, I didn't think I was a complete dummy. So I, you know, I, so I, I would, uh, yeah, so I, uh, Yeah, so I, I <laughs> so I, I gave myself a little, uh, little, little, uh, little leeway. Just, just didn't, didn't worry too much. I guess it's important that you, your ambition is not to be a physics professor or a maths professor. Your ambition is to do something important. My aspiration really was to be like my role models, like uh, Einstein. You know, a research physicist. That's what I really wanted to be—a researcher. Not necessarily physics, but a researcher or an intellectual like Bertrand Russell. Those those were kind of my models: Bertrand Russell, Einstein, maybe H.G. Wells. People who made a mark somehow, one way or another. Uh, that's what I wanted to be. And if I couldn't be that, I didn't really care what what so much <laughs> whether, whether whether I was a professor at University A or University B or it's like, you know that 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 was that was kind of. Uh, Just there was only one level that counted, and everything else was just more or less the same. And so, is that what you look for when you're recruiting people to join you now? That they have an ambition? <laughs> <laughs> there aren't. Uh, no, I no. I mean, it's not necessarily a desirable thing because you know most people who have that kind of attitude uh, will not even succeed to the extent I have. It's not a uh, not necessarily an attitude I recommend. Uh, certainly, to everybody, it takes all. It takes different kinds of approaches and attitudes, and and we need people who work on tractable problems and sort of know what they're doing. <laughs> uh, you need settlers as well as explorers, so to speak, and probably more of them. 
It's been a huge pleasure to speak. Frank, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs> You've just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith by Filt for Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Sally Henriksen, and I'm Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. This episode is from season two of the show. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms. 